Now this is Luther's works, Linker edition, volume 14. Page. Now first of all, we'll read a little bit about the sayings of the scholars concerning Luther's writings. We'll read a few of these. There's quite a few of them in here. John Brent's Luther lives alone in his writings. We all are in comparison with him a dead letter. Martin Chemnitz, quote, A man may tell how far he has advanced in theology by the degree to which he is pleased with Luther's writings. John Albert Bengal, Luther was truly a great man. All his cliques together could not have made a Luther. The death of Luther is an important boundary line in history. After the death of Luther, there was nothing new added to the work of the Reformation. Erasmus said this, and he's the one that Luther wrote against when he wrote The Bondage of the Will. Anyway, Erasmus says, it's no small prejudice in his favor that his morals are unblameable and that slander itself can fasten no reproach on him. I heard men of great merit, equally respectable for learning and piety, congratulate themselves for having been acquainted with his books. Luther is a man of two great abilities for me to encounter and I learn more from one page of his than from all the works of Thomas Aquinas. And that was the man that Luther wrote the bondage of the will against his writings. Now Melanchthon says, Luther is too great, too wonderful for me to depict in words. If there be a man on earth I love with my whole heart, that man is Luther. One is an interpreter, one is a logician, another an orator, affluent and beautiful in speech. But Luther is all in all. Whatever he writes, whatever he utters, pierces to the soul, fixes itself like arrows in the heart. He is a miracle among men. It is also evident that the light of the gospel has been kindled anew through the words and writings of Luther. He translated the scriptures into German, and that, too, in a style of such clearness that his version affords more light to the reader than very many commentaries. In addition, he was the author of many expositions of the scriptures, which even Erasmus used to say far surpassed any extant. No base passions or revolutionary designs were ever observed in him. On the contrary, he was at all times a counselor of peaceable measures. Now we have Nicholas von Amsdorf. If all commentaries, ancient and modern, are collected into one mass, and that which is best be selected from them, it could not be compared with the writings of this man. I'm not ignorant how boastful this must seem, to how many such a tribute must be offensive, but, however others judge this constant assertion, I so affirm, 
Since the apostles, no one has ever seen or ever will be furnished with such wisdom, faith, and constancy as we have witnessed in Dr. Luther. Nor have I any doubt that godly posterity will have the same judgment. Martin Bucher says, No one since the time of the apostles has ever taught more clearly and faithfully the article of justification. None of the fathers have taught with such devotion and according to the mind of the Spirit concerning living good works, namely those that flow from living faith and advance the welfare of one's neighbor. No one has explained the Holy Scriptures so purely or more properly, rightly, happily, with such energy and so many penetrating arguments. No one has taught so clearly the duties of the civil magistrates in regard to both tables of the law. The incredible success of the greatest works in a church, as the Augsburg Confession, for example, was due largely to him. He was also the author of model prayers, psalms, hymns, and chants. John Calvin says, we sincerely testify that we regard him as a noble apostle of Christ, by whose labor and ministry the purity of the gospel has been restored to our times. If anyone will carefully consider what was the state of things at the period when Luther arose, he will see that he had to contend with almost all the difficulties which were encountered by the apostles. One respect, indeed, his condition was worse and harder than theirs. There was no kingdom, no principality against which they had to declare war, whereas Luther could not go forth except by the ruin of that empire, which was not only the most powerful of all, but regarded all the rest as obnoxious to itself. Luther is the trumpet, or rather the thunder, he is the lightning which has aroused the world from its lethargy. It's not so much Luther who speaks as God whose lightnings burst from his lips. Ulrich Swingley says, Luther is, it seems to me, such an excellent champion of God who has examined the scriptures with so great a zeal that he had no equal on earth for thousands of years. I care not that the papists call me a heretic also like him. In the manly, undaunted spirit with which he attacked the Pope at Rome, no one has ever been his equal, without underestimating anyone, ever since the papacy has been established. But to whom may we ascribe such a work, to God or to Luther? Ask Luther himself, and I'm sure he will answer to God. Why then do you attribute other men's doctrines to Luther, when he himself attributes it to God and submits nothing new but what is contained in the eternally unalterable word of God? John Gerhard says, Our confession does not depend upon Luther's doctrine or person, but on the unshaken word of God. We do not ascribe to Luther prophetic or apostolic authority or absolute infallibility, nor do we make his writings equal to the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. 
Either without proof from God's word do we believe his statements, but we regard him an eminent teacher of the church, whom God in these last times has raised up for the benefit of his church, pressed by the papal yoke and endowed with unique gifts, furnished with excellent strength of soul to remove corruptions and abuses from the pure preaching of the gospel and to bring back to light the truth almost covered by the darkness of error. John Mathesius says, Dr. Luther wrote apostle in the German language, faithfully exhorted the people to saving faith and brotherly love, patience in suffering and Christian humility, and earnestly warned against idolatry and human nonsense. John Art quotes, passages from the church apostle, which he says we should plant as beautiful flowers in the pleasure garden of our hearts. P.J. Spinner, among the books, says, Among the books a pastor should have in his library, I should recommend, first of all, the church apostle of our beloved Luther. H. Frank said, I have often wished that our preachers and laity would read Luther's apostles more diligently which there is surely more spirit, power, and life than in the modern refined sermons. J.G. Walsh says, The sermons in the church apostle offer the erring, erring, full power for reformation, the weak a stimulating admonition, the godless a penetrating warning, and the distressed a strong consolation. John Bunyan has to say, I do prefer this book of Martin Luther upon the Galatians, except the Bible, before all books that ever I have seen, as most fit for a wounded conscience. John F. Budius says, The truth indeed fought for Luther, but no less did he fight for the truth, so that no mortal could have done more to defend it and place it beyond the reach of its foes. His own writings leave no room for doubt that he argued from profound conviction of the truth. He asks no favors, makes no efforts to propitiate. He compels by the weight of proof, triumphs by demonstration of the truth, forces the unwilling to do homage to sound doctrine. Now this is what John Wesley has to say. In the evening I went very unwilling to a society, the Moravians in Aldersgate, where one was reading Luther's apostle, or preface rather, to the epistles to the Romans. About quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Alexander Bauer in his Life of Luther says, his Life of Luther book says, 
It was in vain that the head of the church of the chief of the German Empire combined to threaten and proscribe him, while his doctrines spread far and wide, and wealthy cities would have been proud to receive him, Luther clung to the spot where he discharged the duty of a teacher and to the associates he had known in the season of humility. So he just stayed to the place where he was called to duty, and that's where he remained. Wasn't looking for high honors, great things to do. A man named Gothold E. Lessing, literary critic he was, he wrote, In such reverence do I hold Luther that I rejoice in having been able to find some defects in him. For I have been in imminent danger of making him an object of idolatrous veneration. The proofs that in some things he was like other men are to me as precious as the most dazzling of his virtues. Now, Frederick the Great, was he a Roman emperor? I'm not sure. Quote, Had Luther done nothing else but liberate the princes and people from the servile bondage under which the dominion of the Roman papacy held them, he would deserve to have a monument erected to his honor as a liberator of his country. Ernest Morris Arndt says in here that he is the author of the patriotic song, What is the German's Fatherland? He says, Luther was a man of God, a German, who thought more of hearty sincerity than of nonsense, who attached a higher value to truth than to lying, who believed in God and worshipped him, but fought and despised the devil. Shy and timid he is when first entering upon his course, he is, but the further he advances, the stronger, the grander he grows. John C. Doderlane, quote, Among all the writings of Luther, I know nothing more precious than his sermons and his letters. From both of these, we can learn to know the man in his entire greatness. John G. Herder says, He spoke the simple, strong, unadorned language of the understanding. He spoke from the heart, not from the head, and from memory. His sermons, therefore, have been the model, especially of the preachers in our church, who are of stable minds. William Cox has to say, Luther's Latin was copious, free, and forcible. He was perfectly master of his native tongue and wrote it with such purity that his works are still esteemed as models of style by German critics. Dr. Roos says, Luther's Bible was, for its era, a miracle of science. Its style sounded as prophecy of a golden age of literature and in masculine force and in the unction of the Holy Spirit. 
It remains a yet unapproached model, history of the Holy Scriptures. Samuel T. Coleridge, his son, Henry Nelson Coleridge, in the defense of his father's religious opinions, says, quote, He saw the very mind of St. Paul in the teachings of Luther on the law and justification by faith. My father's affectionate respect for Luther is enough to alienate him from the high Anglican party. My father called Luther the most evangelical writer he knew after the apostles. Frederick von Schlegel, Catholic historian, says, it is well known that all true philologists regard Luther's Bible as the standard and model of classical expression in the German language. And not only Klopstock, but many other writers of the first rank have fashioned their style and selected their phrases according to the rules of this version. As to the intellectual power and greatness of Luther, abstracted from all consideration of the uses to which he applied them, I think there are few even of his own disciples who appreciate him highly enough. It was upon him and his soul that the fate of Europe depended. He was a man of his age and nation. He it was who gave permanency to the Reformation. Robert Southey, a poet laureate of England, Said, Blessed be the day of Martin Luther's birth. It should be a festival only second to that of the Nativity of Jesus Christ. Henry Hallam, historian and critic, said, A better tone in preaching began with Luther. The hymns in use with the Lutheran Church many of which are his own, possess a simple dignity and devoutness never before excelled. Henrik Hine, quote, He created the German language. He was not only the greatest, but the most German man of our history. Sometimes he was wild as the storm that uproots the oak. Then again, he was gentle as a zephyr that dallies with the violet. He was full of the most awful reverence and self-sacrifice in honor of the Holy Spirit. He could merge himself entire in pure spirituality, and yet he was well acquainted with the glories of this world and knew how to prize them. He was a complete man, I would say an absolute man, one in whom matter and spirit were not divided. Frederick L. G. von Romer, in reply to the charge against Luther by Palavincini, the historian of the Council of Trent, said, Luther's hardest and least becoming language appears mild in comparison with the bloodthirsty intolerance of his opponents. A noble eloquence supplanted the unintelligible prattle of the schools. Through him, Germany once more learned to speak. The German people once more to hear. 
he who is displeased with his style or with his matter must yet confess that his writings reveal everywhere the inspiration of the fear of God and the power of faith. Luther never dissimulated. That word dissimulate is to hide under a false appearance. Persuasions, promises, threats had no power to shake his rock-firm will, his indomitable purpose. Among his opponents, not one can compare with him in personal qualities. He is a man in whose train follows a whole world of aspiration, effort, and achievement. Dr. Thomas Chalmer of Scotland, in a sermon on Jeremiah 6.16 in London, said, Jeremiah 6.16, let's read that, says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way, and walk therein? And ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Anyway, he said on, speaking about Luther from Jeremiah 6.16, he said, Luther's own heart nourished the germ of the greatest revolution the world ever saw. Many hearts caught his enthusiastic ardor, and his voice was echoed from the most distant corners of Europe. He entered the field as a champion of the rights of humanity. His might overcame every difficulty, and he stood forward as the victorious conqueror of ignorance and imposture. C.C.J. Bunsen, Prussian, it's Russian with a P on it, country called Prussia, Prussian minister to England, said, It is Luther's genius applied to the Bible which has preserved the only unity which is in our days remaining to the German nation, that of language, literature, and thought. There is no similar instance in the known history of the world of a single man achieving such a work. His prophetic mind foresaw that the scriptures would pervade, and pervade is become diffused throughout every part, what the word means, pervade the living languages and tongues all over the world, a process going on still with more activity than ever. Professor Gottfried Thomasius, he says, in Luther, the principle, one may say the spirit of Protestantism, was made incarnate and in a way so original that he has attained typical importance to the entire church called after him. Even to this day it bears his signature. K.F.A. Conus said, Never have the Christian and Teutonic spirit so thoroughly pervaded any one man as Luther. From head to foot he was full of genius, yet he submitted all his knowledge, will, and affection to the word. 
Professor James M. Hoppen of Yale Seminary said, Luther plucked up preaching from the mire in which it had fallen and reinstated it as a central light in the house of God. He spoke freely and directly out of the word. Christ was his unceasing theme. Merle Dubini said, If in the history of the world there be an individual we love more than another, it is Luther. Thomas Carlyle said, The Diet of Worms, Luther's appearance there in the 17th of April, 1521, may be considered as the greatest scene in modern European history, the point indeed from which the whole subsequent history of civilization takes its rise. Our petition, the petition of the whole world, to him was, Free us, it rests with thee, desert us not. Luther did not desert us. It is, as we say, the greatest movement in the modern history of men, English, Puritanism, England and its Parliament, America's vast work these two centuries, French Revolution, Europe and its work everywhere at present, the germ of it all lay there. Had Luther in that moment done differently, it had all been otherwise. Leopold Rank says, Throughout we see Luther directing his weapons on both sides against the papacy which sought to reconquer the world struggling for its emancipation and against the sects of many names which sprang up beside him, assailing church and state. To emancipate is to free from restraint, control, or the power of another, to free from bondage, to free from any controlling influence, emancipation, simple meaning for such a big word, Anywhere way Leopold Rank had to say more, he said, the great reformer, if we may use an expression of our days, was one of the greatest conservatives that ever lived. M. Gelzer said about Luther, he said, Luther united, and this is the most extraordinary fact connected with him, to large endowments of mind and heart, and the great gift of imparting these intellectual treasures, the invincible power of original and creative thought, both in resisting and influencing the outer world. Archdeacon Hare said, as he has said of St. Paul's words, his own are not dead words, but living creatures, and have hands and feet. It no longer surprises us that this man who wrote and spoke thus, although no more than a poor monk, should have been mightier than the Pope and the Emperor to boot, that the rivers of living water should have swept half of Germany and the chief part of northern Europe out of the kingdom of darkness into the region of evangelical light.
But Luther, apart from the Reformation, would cease to be Luther. His work was not something external to him, like Saturn's ring on which he shone and within which he revolved. It was his own very self that grew out of him while he grew out of his work. Julius Michelet, a Catholic historian, says, it is not incorrect to say that Luther has been the restorer of liberty in modern, modern time. If he did not create, he at least courageously affixed his signature to that great revolution which rendered the right of examination lawful in Europe. And if we exercise in all its plentitude at this day this first and highest privilege of human intelligence, it is to him we are most indebted for it. Or can we think, speak, or write without being made conscious at every step of the immense benefit of this intellectual enfranchisement? To whom do I owe the power of publishing what I am now indebting, except to this liberator of modern thought? Professor Dollinger, leader of the old Catholics, had to say, the Protestant doctrine was developed in the spirit of this German, the greatest German of his age. For Germany, the name of Luther is not simply the name of a distinguished man. It is a living germ of a period in a national life. It is the center of a new circle of ideas. He controlled the mind and the heart of the Germanic race as the hand of the musician wakes at will the strings of his lyre. The lyre is a stringed instrument like the harp. No other man in the whole Christian era has given to his race as much as Luther gave to his. Language, a manual of faith for the people, the catechism, the Bible, the hymns, and everything his adversaries tried to put in conflict or in rivalry with them seemed flat and weak and pallid by the side of that eloquence by which he entranced men. His adversaries stammered. Luther spoke. He alone has left the ineffaceable stamp of his own spirit alike upon the German tongue and the German mind. The very men among the Germans who from the depths of their soul abhor him as a terrible heresiarch are forced to speak in his words and think in his thoughts. Professor K. A. Haas said, In popular eloquence, his equal has never arisen in Germany. He belongs not to one party, but to the German people and to Christendom. Now here is a Jesuit historian. They were the staunch defenders of the Catholic faith the secret society that persecuted and 
assassinated and did everything to anybody that would they thought needed to be taken care of that was the, contrary to the Catholic doctrine. Anyway, this Jesuit, J.M.B. Auden, said, Luther's translation is simple in the recital of the patriarch, glowing in the predictions of the prophets, familiar in the Gospels, and colloquial in the epistles. It's colloquial, colloquial, colloquial. It says, of or relating conversation, colloquial, in the epistles. Professor A.C. Hardwick, Cambridge University, says, It has been calculated that in one year, 1523, as many as 183 books were published in his name. Professor Hodge of Princeton says, No one knows Luther who has not read pretty faithfully the five volumes of his letters collected and edited by D. Wett. That's spelled capital D E capital W-E-T-T-E. -T -T Bayard Taylor says, Luther was so equally great in many directions as a personal character, as a man of action, as a teacher and preacher, finally as an author. He was a poet as well as a theologian, and as a poet he was able to feel as no theologian could the intrinsic difference of spirit and character in the different books of the Old Testament, not only to feel but to reproduce them. Sound and vigorous and many-sided was the new spirit which he infused into the language. Professor Charles A. Stork, Gettysburg Seminary, says, Luther was a marvelously complete man. He was myriad-sided, multiform, carrying in one individuality all the great types and features of human nature at the top of their power. We have only to call to mind Aristotle, the unemotional, Plato, the unpractical, Calvin with his cold side, Wesley with his lack of intellectual grasp, to see how great a man may be and yet all short of the greatest. But in Luther we have a rare spectacle of a man sent into the world who was complete in his whole in his whole make. Emotionally, intellectually, practically, he was complete and justly proportioned. He had a great loving, hungering heart, which nothing but God could fill. And after God, he saw it as a hunter seeks for game. When he found him, he lived in him. When Luther speaks, we seem to feel God close by. It is this that enabled him to grasp the heart of Europe of his day, to hold it through all these centuries. He was a theologian and a most profound one. What Luther felt, what he saw, that he understood to apply immediately to life. 
Philip Schaff says, There is no man in history after the incomparable St. Paul who accomplished more for his race than Martin Luther. His mighty fortress is our God, is the great Marseillaise of Protestantism. Its words and notes thrill on the heart like bugle blasts from heaven. J.M. Buckley, editor of the Christian Advocate in New York, says, Martin Luther belongs as fully to the 19th century as to the 16th, and he will be as much at home in the 25th as he now is in this century. There are strong grounds for our American, for the great name of Luther. His birth preceded the discovery of this country by Columbus only nine years. North America was thrown wide open to Protestant immigration. Even William Penn's colony of Quakers had a large Lutheran coloring, for Penn had been some time in Germany, had offered special inducements to the Germans to immigrate to America. As a nation, then, we have ample reason to revere the memory of Luther. The central battlefield of Protestantism was Germany, and the victory everywhere depended on the victory there. Luther was too large for one continent or for one century. Professor Egbert C. Smith, Andover Center Seminary, says, No one touched men at so many points, helped them so much, entered so profoundly into the deepest secrets of their hearts, opened to them such sources of strength. It is not too much to say that through Luther, Christ was, as it were, again born into the world. Ian Zabrisk of the Dutch Reformed Church says, If ever a man was called to be what Bunyan styles a great heart, it was this little monk who led his age against the supreme powers of the world, the papacy, the empire, and the devil. Therefore, we must not wander to find his writings and reported conversations bristling with sword thrusts in the hearts of the king's enemies. His favorite psalm was the second. I love it, he said, with all my heart. It strikes and flashes valiantly against kings, princes, counselors, and judges. S. Irenaeus Prime in New York Observer says, What makes the difference between Spain and England? What makes Scotland better than Ireland? What makes Germany stronger than France? What caused the difference in all the elements of greatness and happiness between North America and South America? Compare Mexico with Ohio. Explain the contrast. What but the Reformation has given impulse to letters, to art, to science, to invention, to all that elevates, enriches, and gladdens mankind. Edward Heidecker, New York City, says, The nations of the world which have accepted Luther's principles and embodied them in their public acts, Germany, England, and the United States, the greater nations, 
Switzerland, Holland, Sweden, and Denmark, the smaller ones, stand foremost in the world in political, social, and moral development. While the nations where Loyola's influence has been strongest, Spain and Portugal, are the last in the list of European nations. And we're coming to the end of these here. There's a few more, but I can't read everything. It isn't that profitable. I'd rather get into the sermon now. I'm sorry I read so much the way it was. Luther didn't care for it all anyway, but just a little history. Now we'll start on page 17, Sermon on the Law, Sermon on the Gospel. It says, this sermon is not found in edition C. The second part of it, under the heading of the Law and the Gospel, was published in an earlier sermon. Uh, this is found in a collection of 12 sermons. It's also found in a collection of 12 sermons in 1536. Now the text is Luke 10, 23-37. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that shewed mercy unto him, then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. I hope you thoroughly understand this gospel lesson, inasmuch as it recurs every year. Since it annually returns in the periscopes, we are required to consider it, and this we will now gladly and briefly do. 
In the first place, the evangelist relates how Christ our Lord led his disciples aside and being alone with them rejoiced in his spirit and earnestly and directly said to them, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I say that many prophets and kings desired to see the things that ye see and saw them not and to hear the things which ye hear, and heard them not. This hearing and seeing must be understood simply and plainly as external seeing and hearing, namely that they saw Christ and his office, heard his preaching, and witnessed the miracles he performed among the Jews. Now it's time to turn this tape over. The Jews also beheld these things with their natural eyes, and some of them indeed experienced them in part in their hearts, but in fact they did not recognize him as the Christ, like the apostles did, and like Peter, who representing all the others confessed and said in Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We indeed admit that even some of the Jews, like the apostles, recognized him as the Christ, but since they were but few who did, Christ therefore takes his apostles here to himself apart. However, in spirit, many prophets and kings saw Christ, as Christ himself says to the Jews concerning Abraham in John 8:56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews thought he spoke of natural seeing, but Christ spoke of the spiritual seeing, as all pious Christian hearts saw him before he was born, still daily see him. For if Abraham saw him, without doubt many more prophets in whom the Holy Spirit dwelt saw him. And although this seeing made the holy fathers and prophets blessed, Yet they had a real heartfelt longing and desire to behold Christ the Lord in the flesh, as is intimated time and again in the prophets. Therefore the Lord here says to his disciples who saw both their natural and their spiritual eyes, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, as though he would say, This is a blessed time, an acceptable year, a special season of grace. That which is now at hand is so precious that the eyes which see it are truly called blessed. For in the past ages the gospel was never preached so publicly and clearly unto all men as at the present. The Holy Spirit was not yet publicly poured out, but was still concealed and had as yet accomplished little. Christ began the office of the Holy Spirit, and afterwards the apostles continued it in full earnest. Therefore he calls all those blessed who see and hear such grace. Now when the Lord said this and was rejoicing in spirit, one presents himself, a lawyer, who acting as though he also amounted to something, tempted the Lord and said, 
Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer was perhaps a wise man and well acquainted with the scriptures, as his answer also suggests. Yet here he becomes a fool and must first begin to learn from the Lord when he is put to shame and disgrace. For Christ teaches him a good lesson and with one word takes out of him all his self-conceit. For he was in the delusion that he had kept the law fully and perfectly and was therefore something extra above others which undoubtedly he was and imagine, because he was so pious and learned, that he was, of course, worthy to talk with the Lord. But now, what does the Lord do to ensnare him in a masterly manner? He does this. He permits him to judge himself, for the evangelist proceeds thus. And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. I think the Lord gave this pious man a good lecture. Alas, it was not right. He should have spared him a little. He puts him to shame before all the world. Well, what good does it do him? Christ shows him that he has as yet done nothing when he allowed himself to think he had done everything. He asked what he should do. I contend that he has enough to do now if he is only able to do great things. Now, much might be said on these two commandments, and it is also really needed, had we the time, for well, these are the highest and greatest themes on which Moses wrote. Yea, on these hang all the law and the prophets, as Christ himself says in Matthew 22:40. Nevertheless, we will briefly consider some phases of them. When we examine the laws of Moses, we find that they all treat of love. For the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, I cannot explain or interpret otherwise than Thou shalt love God alone. Thus Moses himself interprets it in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul, all thy might. From this passage, the lawyer has taken his answer. But the Jews understand this law to mean no more than that they should not set up idols and images to worship. And when they could say and confess with their lips that they have only one God and honor no other gods, then they think they've kept this commandment. Thus this lawyer also understood it, but it was a false erroneous knowledge of the law. Now we must have high regard for the law. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou, thou, it says thou, and everything thou art. Especially does it mean the heart. 
the soul, and all thy powers. It does not speak of the tongue or the hands or the knees, but it speaks of the whole body and of all thou hast and art. If I am to have no other God, then I must surely possess the only true God with my heart. That is, I must in my heart be affectionate to him, evermore cleave to him, depend upon him, trust him, have my desire, love, and joy in him, and always think of him. Just as we say at other times when we delight in something that it tastes good in our very heart, and when one speaks or laughs and is not in earnest and does not mean it from his heart, we say, you laugh and your heart is not in it. The heart is quite a different thing than the lips. Therefore, in the scriptures, the heart signifies the great and ardent love we should have for God. Those who serve God only with their lips, with their hands, or with their knees are hypocrites, and God cares nothing for them. For God does not want only a part. On the contrary, he wants the whole man. Now we have in 2 Chronicles 12:13 talking about Rehoboam. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. And also, there's a place in the uh, same book, and it's talking about Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He was at the uh, battle at the death of Ahab, the wicked king Ahab. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly, and love them that hate the Lord. Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. The Jews abstained outwardly from idolatry and served God only with their lips, but their hearts were far from him, full of mistrust and unbelief. Outwardly they appeared beautiful, as though they meant it in all sincerity, but within they were full of idolatry. There are many other places in the scriptures that speak about the heart, the heart serving God, the heart meeting God. Therefore the Lord said unto them, the Lord said unto them, Matthew 23, 27, and 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye tithe mint and anise and cumin, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. 
Even as ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, they are really wicked people who become proud in external things, who desire to justify and make themselves pious by their works, as this lawyer here does. Behold what a proud character he is. He presents himself in his own name and thinks Christ will not rebuke him. Yea, he allows himself to think that the Lord will extol and praise his life in the presence of all the people does not think of learning anything from the Lord, but only seeks his own praise. The ignorant pretender would have gladly heard a psalm of praise from the man whom the people esteemed, and at whom all men wandered. Thus all hypocrites do, who outwardly parade their excellent, great, noble works. They well say that they do not seek honor and praise, but inwardly in their hearts they are full of ambition and desire all the world to know of their holiness, smile very nicely when they hear men speak of it. And that's exactly the way everyone will be, or not everyone, some despair in their sins, they feel it's useless, but the Pharisees, that is, if they don't know Christ, they're a Pharisee. They don't have Christ dwelling in them by faith, rejoicing in him. They're rejoicing and taking pleasure in themselves, praising and glorifying themselves. Yet the Lord does not serve this lawyer thus, but he puts him to shame. This Christ is an unfriendly, ungracious man. He tells the people the truth and well deserves that they should hate him. The pious holy lawyer still does his utmost and knows nothing but how to harvest great honors and obtain high renown for his precious life. He thinks he has perfectly fulfilled this commandment and hopes for a favorable answer that the Lord will say, Dear sir, you've done it all. But Christ goes to work and first tells him, Do this. That is to say, in good German, you are a rogue in the hide. You've not done this during your whole life. Yea, you've not kept a single letter of the law, and thus shows him his wickedness. The poor fellow thinks he should sit in the first seat, that he is really pure and beautiful, and by rights should sit among the angels rather than here among the people. What a wonderful Christ is this! People regard this lawyer as pious and holy, but Christ says he shall first go, begin to fulfill the law. Now these are the very fellows who most of all sin against the first commandment and think no further than the words read. I must love God, and then they think they fulfill the law, while it remains hovering on their tongues and over their hearts but never enters. This, however, is not enough. It must reach much further, namely that I so love God that for his sake I can forsake all creatures, should he require it also body and life. Yea, that I should love him above all things. For God is a jealous God and cannot suffer us to love anything above himself. 
But to love anything beneath himself, he of course allows, just as a husband may easily allow his wife to love the maidservants, the house and house utensils, cattle, and other things, but to love with the love she should have for him, he will not suffer her to love anyone beside himself. Yea, he desires her to forsake all things for his sake. So again, the wife also requires the same from her husband. Thus God can also allow us to love his creatures, yea, they are created for this purpose, and they are good. The sun is an excellent creature, gold and silver, and all things that are attractive and beautiful by nature cause us to love them. This God indeed permits us to do that I should cling to the creature and love it with the same love with which I love God the Creator. This he can and will not allow. Yea, his will is that I should deny and forsake all things should he desire and require it of me. Be satisfied should I nevermore behold the sun, my money and possessions, rather than forsake him not love him. The love of the creature should stand far, far below our love to him, and as he is the chief good, his will is also to be loved in the highest degree above all other good. If he will not allow me to love anything as much as I love him, much less will he allow me to love anything more than himself, though it be a creature of his own creation. Now I think you can understand what it is to love God with all your heart, with your soul, all your soul, and all your mind. To love God with all your heart is to love him above all creatures. That is, although many creatures are quite lovely, as they please me and I love them, nevertheless I have to despise, forsake all these for God's sake, whenever God my Lord desires it. To love God with all your soul is to devote your entire bodily life to him that you can say when a love of any creature or any persecution threatens to overpower you, all this I will give up before I will forsake my God. Let men cast me away, murder, or drown me. Let what God's will is happen to me. I will gladly lose all before I will forsake thee, O Lord. Unto thee will I cling more than to all thy creatures, or to anything that is not thyself. I will risk all things, together with what I have and am, that I may not forsake thee. The soul in the scriptures signifies the life of the body, which acts through the five senses eating, drinking, sleeping, waking, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and everything that the soul does through the body. I would say by the body, does by the body. Soul is what moves all our senses by or through the body. To love God with all our strength is to devote all our members, whatever we may be able to do through our bodies, to the love of God. 
sacrifice all rather than do anything contrary to his will. To love God with all the mind is to undertake nothing except that which is pleasing to God, by which is meant the self-conceit which man has, that the same be directed to God, and that all things be pleasing to him. Thus you see what the commandment requires, Thou shalt love God, thou, thou, holy and fully, not thy hands, not thy lips, not thy knees. Knees would be prayer, right? Those who do this fulfill the commandment in the right sense. But there is not a man on earth who thus fulfills the law. Yea, we all do just the opposite. Thus this law here makes us all sinners, so that not the least letter of this commandment is fulfilled, even by the most holy persons in the world. For no one clings so firmly to God with all the heart that he could forsake all things for God's sake. We have, God be praised, become so competent that we can almost not suffer the least word. Yea, we will not let go of a nickel for the sake of God. How is it possible for us to love God as long as his will displeases us? For if I love God, I love also his will. Now when God sends us sickness, poverty, shame, and disgrace, that is his will, what do we do under such circumstances? We thunder, scold, and growl, and bear it with great impatience. And this is the least part, for what would we do if we had to forsake body and life for God and Christ's sake? Then we would act quite differently. Yet in the meantime, I act like this Pharisee and lawyer does. I lead a fine outward life, honor and serve God, fast, pray, and appear very pious and holy. But God does not want this. He wants us to accept his will with joy and love. And this we are too tardy in doing. Therefore, what the Lord here says to this lawyer, he says to us all, namely that we have not yet fulfilled the law, still he requires us to do it. On this account, all men are guilty of death and are the devil's own property. All men are liars, Psalm 116.11, vain and offensive. What they pretend does not avail before God. In our own affairs we are shrewd. How to scrape together money and goods. How to speak well of God before the people. How to push ourselves ahead in a masterly manner. What does God care for this? His will is that we should love him with all our hearts. This no man can do, and the conclusion is that we are all sinners especially those who walk in a beautiful outward show. Therefore, it is safer that we go and confess that we all are sinners than that we have respect to our works and cling to our beautiful, glittering lives. Now, the second heading of this sermon is a sermon on the gospel in a parable. 
The foregoing is the first part of our gospel lesson, and it is a sermon on the law. The second part now follows, and it preaches the gospel. How and whence we are to receive power to fulfill the law. This the Good Samaritan will teach us. How does this lawyer now act after the Lord has thus turned him away? He goes ahead, the evangelist says, and desires to justify himself. And he says to the Lord, And who is my neighbor? He does not ask, Who is my God? As though he would say, I owe God nothing. With God I am in good standing. I am also inclined to think that I am under obligations to no man, yet I would like to know who my neighbor is. The Lord answers and tells him a very beautiful parable by which he shows that we are all neighbors among one another, both he who does another a kindness as well as he who is in need of a kindness. Although the text reads as if Christ said that he is our neighbor who does another a kindness. In this, however, the scriptures make no difference. Here they call him neighbor who does a kindness and at another place, him who receives the kindness. By means of this parable, the Lord concludes with the words, Go and do thou likewise. So that this lawyer did not only sin against God, but also against his neighbor. He not only failed to love God, but he did not love his neighbor and never did him a favor. By this the poor man falls into such a sweat that he is only deceived from head to foot. How could he be so mistaken, a highly learned and pious man? His mistake came in this way. He led a pharisaical, feigned, and hypocritical life. He did not look down to his neighbor to help him with his life, but only sought thereby his own vainglory and honor before the eyes of the people and with this he stared piously toward heaven. Now you've often heard that a Christian life consists in acting before my God in faith and with a pure heart, but toward my neighbor in a right living and good works, and not wait until my neighbor seeks the kindness of me and asks me for something, but approach and meet him with kindness and freely offer it to him. Let us now see what the parable in itself teaches. This Samaritan, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is showing his love toward God and his neighbor, toward God in that he was obedient to him, came down from heaven and became man, and thus fulfilled the will of his father, toward his neighbor in that he immediately after his baptism began to preach, to do wonders, to heal the sick. And in short, he did no work that centered in himself alone, but all his acts centered in his neighbor. And this he did with all his powers, and thus he became our servant, who could have well remained in heaven and been equal to God. But all this he did because he knew that this pleased God and was his Father's will. When he entered upon that high mission to prove that he loved God with all his heart, he laid down his bodily life with all he had and said, 
Father, here you have all my bodily life, my glory and honor which I had among the people. All this I give as is for thy sake, that the world may know how I love thee. My Father, let the wisdom, my wisdom, let my wisdom perish so that the world may look upon me as most foolish. Let me be the most despised who is heretofore praised by all the world. Now I am the worst murderer who before was friendly, useful, and serviceable to the whole world. Dear Father, all this I despise only that I may not be disobedient to thee. This is the Samaritan who came uninvited and fulfilled the law with his whole heart. For only he fulfilled the law, no one can deprive him of this honor. He alone merits it and well maintains it all alone. Now this would be no special comfort for us, but that he has compassion on the poor wounded man, takes him under his care, binds his wounds, takes him into the inn, and waits on him. This avails for us. The man who here lies half dead, wounded and stripped of his clothing, is Adam and all mankind. The murderers are the devils who robbed and wounded us, and left us lying prostrate, half dead. We still struggle a little for life, but there lies horse and man. We cannot help ourselves to our feet. And if we were left thus lying, we would have to die by reason of our great anguish and lack of nourishment. Maggots would grow in our wounds, followed by great misery and distress. The parable stands in bold relief and pictures us perfectly what we are and can do with our boasted reason and free will. If the poor wounded man had desired to help himself, it would only have been worse for him. He would only have done harm to himself and irritated his wounds and only prepared more misery, distress for himself. Had he remained lying quiet, he would have had as much suffering Thus it is when we are left to ourselves. We are always lost. We may lay hold where we will. Hitherto man has always acted this way. He has thought out many ways and methods how we might reform our lives and get to heaven. One found this way, another that. Therefore, so many kinds of orders arose. Like manner, the letters of indulgence and crusades originated. But they have only made evil worse, such is the world, and it is thus finely portrayed in this wounded man. It lies in sins over head and ears and cannot help itself. But the Samaritan who has fulfilled the law and is perfectly healthy and sound comes and does more than both priest and Levite. He binds up the sores of the wounded man, pours in oil and wine lifts him upon his own beast and brings him into the inn, takes care, good care of him. When he departs, he carefully commends him to the host and besides leaves him a sufficient supply of money, while neither the priest nor the Levite would do one of these kind acts. The priest signifies the dear sainted fathers before Moses. 
the Levite, the priesthood of the Old Testament. All these, however, have accomplished nothing by their works and have passed by on the other side like this priest and Levite. Therefore, if I had, for example, all the good works of Noah, Abraham, and all the dear fathers, they would still be of no benefit to me. They have indeed beheld the wounded man lying helpless and half dead, but they could not help it. He who lay there half dead saw it too, but what of it? He could make it no better. The dear sainted fathers saw very well that the people lay in their sins over their ears and also felt the anguish of sin. But what could they do to remedy it? They could make it only worse, but not better. These were the preachers of the law and showed what the world was, namely, full of deadly sins, and it lay there half dead and could not help itself, notwithstanding all its powers, reason, and free will. Go then, thou beautifully painted rogue, and boast of thy free will, of thy merits and holiness. But Christ, the true Samaritan, takes the poor man to himself as his own, goes to him, and does not require the helpless one to come to him. For here is no merit, but pure grace and mercy. He binds up his wounds, cares for him, and pours in oil and wine. This is the whole gospel from beginning to end. He pours in oil when grace is preached, as when one says, Behold, thou poor man, here is your unbelief, here is your condemnation, here you are wounded and sore. Wait, all this I will cure with the gospel. Behold here, cling firmly to this Samaritan, to Christ the Savior. He will help you, and nothing else in heaven or on earth will. You know that very well that oil softens, and thus also the sweet, loving preaching of the gospel gives me a soft, mild heart toward God and my neighbor, so that I risk my bodily life for the sake of Christ my Lord and his gospel, if God and necessity require it. But wine is sharp and signifies a holy cross that immediately follows. Christian need not look for his cross, it's always on his back. For he thinks, as St. Paul says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is the court color in this kingdom. Whoever is ashamed of the color does not belong to this king. Then the Samaritan lifts the wounded man on his beast. This beast is Christ the Lord himself. He carries us. We lay upon his shoulders, neck and body. There is scarcely a more lovely picture in the entire gospel than where Christ the Lord compares himself to a shepherd. In Luke 15, who carries a lost sheep on his shoulders back to the fold. He still continually carries his lost sheep thus at the present day. 
The stable or inn is Christianity. Here in this world where we must remain for a short time, the host is the preacher of the word of God and of the gospel who is to nurse and care for us. Now, here we have the substance of the gospel. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of mercy and grace, in which there is nothing but a continual caring of the host. Christ carries our infirmities and sicknesses. He takes our sins upon himself and has patience when we fail. We still always lay about his neck, and yet he does not become weary of carrying us which should be the greatest comfort for us when we are in conflict with sin. Ministers in this kingdom are to comfort the consciences, deal gently with them, and feed them with the gospel, carry the weak, heal the sick, and know how to divide the word rightly and administer the same to everyone according to his needs. This is the office of a true bishop and minister, not to proceed with violence as our bishops do, who come threatening with stocks and the block, crying, Ho, up there, up there, who will not, must. This should not be, but a bishop or minister ought to resemble one who waits upon the sick, treats him very gently, gives kind, friendly words, and exercises all diligence in their behalf. Thus a bishop or minister should also do and remember that his bishopric or parish is nothing but a hospital and an infirmary where he has very many and various kinds of sick people for treatment. When Christ is thus preached, faith and life meet together and fulfill the commandment of love. Now the next topic is of the law and the gospel. I have often told you, dearly beloved, that the entire scriptures consist of two parts, of the law and the gospel. It is the law which teaches what we are required to do. The gospel teaches where we shall receive what the law demands. For it's quite a different thing to know what we should have and know where to get it. Just as when I am given into the hands of the physician, where it's quite a different art to tell what my disease is than to tell what medicine I must take so as to recover. Thus it is likewise here. The law discovers the disease. The gospel ministers the medicine. This you clearly see in today's gospel. The lawyer comes desiring eternal life and inquires what he shall do to secure it. The law tells him and says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He who reads this only superficially, as this lawyer here does, will not understand it. One must enter into it, and portray, and even behold himself in it. For if I try to love God with all my heart, I will soon see how far I fail. And so with all the soul, that is, with the inner soul which I feel in the flesh, that I love and experience love in all my senses. For to love with the soul in the scriptures means a love that is a gallant, that a gallant youth feels towards his beloved. 
again with all thy strength, that is, with all thy members, again with all thy mind, that is, all thy senses, thoughts, and delusions must be directed toward God. For if I am to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, then my eyes dare not give one scornful glance, my tongue speak an angry word, my feet, hands, and ears must all be one, and give forth no angry sign. That is to say, thou shalt love God with all thy heart, so that thy whole body, from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet, inwardly and outwardly, goes forth in love and rejoices in God and honors him. Now find me a man who is pious with a burning passion and love. There is none such on the earth. We find ourselves much more inclined to anger, hatred, envy, worldly pleasures, than to tender-heartedness and other virtues. Now, if I find in my inclination such a spark, even one spark, then the law is not satisfied. But I find not only a spark in me, but the whole bake oven full of the fire of inclinations. For there is no love in the heart, nor in any member of my body. Therefore, I here see in the law, as in a mirror, that everything I have is condemned and cursed. For not one jot of the law shall pass away, but all must be fulfilled, as Christ says in Matthew 5.18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now you do not find in yourself that you do with all your soul and with all your heart with joy and pleasure, what the law requires of you. Therefore you are condemned and a child of Satan. Then know how this should help you to govern yourself in the future. Behold, you must first come to the knowledge to confess that you are the devil's own property. But if you would know no more than how you are to treat him, to be freed from him, you would have to perish. To this end the law serveth that we may learn that we are condemned, for this evil lust is found in us all, and yet we should not have a spark of it in us. Our sophists fail to see this, and have taught if a man does the best he can, God then gives him grace. They are blind guides, and themselves confess that man has little desire for the good. Yet still, if he go and do it, even though disorderly, unwillingly, indolently, he's nevertheless in favor with God. Christ here teaches the contrary, that we should go forth with a passion and love, and do the law with a joyful and happy mind. Now whom would you rather believe, Christ or the sophists? I leave this to you to judge. From such false knowledge the cloisters later arose into which men entered and contended that if a man were only in a cloister, it matters not how unwillingly he was there, then he would be saved. So they taught, but now Christ's will is that man should do good works willingly and joyfully, 
Hence, if they are done with a troubled conscience and a heavy heart, it's a sin. Therefore, cease from all works that you do not perform with pleasure and love. They, therefore, should have said, Man, do you see, you poor condemned creature, you should have delight in God's law, and you have no pleasure in it. Hence, show some delight and love, or you are God's enemy and the devil's friend. In this way, the people would have bravely forsaken their own presumption, come to a knowledge of themselves, and would have said, O oh God, now I'm condemned, yes, this is right. Here everyone might soon know and conclude that we all belong to Satan as long as we find within ourselves displeasure in the law of God. Therefore, boldly cast away all works from yourself, then you will find delight in and love for God's law in your heart. Then you will find delight in and love for God's law in your heart. That's kind of a saying a little too soon. First of all, Christ has to enter therein. Can't say it in the same sentence, hardly. I experience indeed that God's law is holy, right, and good, but it is my death, and if it could be, I would prefer that it did not exist. This is continued on the next tape.